From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. 305 counts. They are throwing the book at the alleged Club Q shooter. We'll help you understand the charges. Then, in the days immediately after the shooting, police issued a plea for people who were at the bar that night, potential victims, to come forward. It makes sense to me that people in the LGBTQ community would have skepticism about participating in a law enforcement investigation, particularly given law enforcement's rocky relationship with LGBT people. Coming up, the history of that relationship in the U.S. and why it remains fraught. Later, public pressure leads the Colorado Healing Fund to make a change. It won't take a portion of Club Q donations for its operational costs. And from Mississippi, memories of Kelly Loving, who was killed in the mass shooting. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The suspect who opened fire at Club Q in Colorado Springs is now formally charged. 305 counts in all, including first-degree murder, attempted murder, and bias-motivated crimes. Anderson Lee Aldrich is accused of entering the club around midnight, November 19th, killing five people and hurting many more. District Attorney Michael Allen. I think the message that we sent is obviously when you file 305 counts in a case that tells the public, this community, this state and this nation that we are taking this case as serious as we possibly can, meaning that we are going to prosecute this case to the fullest extent of the law. We also have filed bias motivated charges in this case, meaning that we think that there's enough evidence to satisfy our burden on bias motivated offenses. We're not going to tolerate actions against community members based on their sexual identity, those types of things. Members of that community have been harassed, intimidated, and abused for too long. That's not going to occur in the 4th Judicial District. To help us decipher what these charges reveal, we reached law professor Ian Farrell of the University of Denver. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Let's break down these charges. They include 10 counts of first-degree murder, 86 counts of attempted murder, and 48 counts of bias-motivated crimes, many others as well. How do you get to 305 counts? You get to 305 counts for a number of different reasons. Firstly, there are multiple counts for each of the deceased victims. So he is being charged for each of the five victims who died, both with deliberate murder and what's called extreme indifference murder. Uh, Extreme indifference murder does not require the prosecution to prove that he actually intended to kill the victim, but rather he was acting in a way that had such a high risk of someone dying that it's considered murder if someone does in fact die And so opening fire with a weapon inside a nightclub would count as extreme indifference to human life. If he is convicted of those, 
he would not be sentenced for twice for each killing. It would, it would only be one of those that he would be sentenced for. So that gets to 10 counts. Then there are also a large number of attempt charges. So there are 44 counts of attempted first-degree murder based on extreme indifference and 44 counts of attempted murder based on intentional killing. And part of the reason that, that that's possible is that in Colorado, the law with regard to attempts is easier for the prosecution to prove. In most jurisdictions, you cannot be charged with attempted murder with the underlying uh, reason being that you're uh, acting with extreme indifference. So that's another reason why we get a large number of counts. Then you also have for each person who was either uh, killed or harmed, for each of those, there are multiple assault charges. And when you consider murder with extreme indifference versus murder on its own, which carries the stiffest penalty? Colorado is again unusually in this respect in that murder with extreme indifference is first degree murder just as intentional deliberate murder is first degree murder. So both of those, either of those would come with a mandatory minimum life without parole sentence. And there are 48 counts of bias-motivated crimes, also known as hate crimes. How do you prove a hate crime? It would be proven by um, intent, so animus or bias or prejudice against the victims based on a factor such as gender or race or you know, being trans or being a member of the LGBTQ plus community each of those, if you can prove that the motivation was because they had that characteristic, that is how you would prove the, the hate crime. Whenever you're trying to prove a mental state, whether it's intent to kill or the fact that um, someone is motivated by bias, you can never do that directly unless they make a statement about it. Usually what the prosecution will do is draw inferences from the circumstances. So barring that kind of statement, the fact that an LGBTQ club was targeted is going to be something that prosecutors argue to prove this. Yes, it would absolutely be a factor and and indeed one of the main factors. It would not by itself, in my view, be enough to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the motive was um, animus against people of these communities, but it's certainly one of the things that would go towards the prosecution attempting to prove that. So if the alleged attacker were to be convicted and gets several life without parole sentences, that doesn't really mean much. It's really largely symbolic. That's also true with the bias-related charges if convicted, that seems to me it would be making a statement rather than inflicting a harsher punishment. I think you're exactly right that um, at some point, fairly quickly, in fact, the additional sentence does not have a practical impact. And so the point of it is to 
communicate a condemnation of the crimes to express just how serious these crimes are considered to be. It's also, I believe, to respect each of the victims would be my guess, so that uh, you are prosecuting someone to the full extent of the law and not only prosecuting crimes with regard to some victims. And I think you're exactly right as well that the choice to charge the, the bias crimes as well communicates that the district attorney, the, the government is treating that as a serious part of the crime. And I think it goes to uh, part of the reason why, um, as, at least as I understand it, we have these crimes, which is that in some ways it is worse to kill someone when the reason you're doing it is because of one of these features. And also in some ways it's more harmful. So I think what the legislature presumably intended was or had in mind was I'm sure we all know uh, members of the LGBTQ plus communities, and I imagine every one of them feels less safe after this happened. And therefore, there is harm to everybody in the community in a way that a murder for some other reason, while it's still a heinous crime, does not have the same effect. Hmm. How does this long list of charges compare to other mass shootings in Colorado? Are you familiar with, say, the Aurora movie theater shooting? James Holmes faced 165 counts. 12 people were killed back in July of 2012. Do you have a sense of how that compares? My sense is that the charging philosophy in these cases uh, is the same or at least very similar. I would also add into the comparison the 2015 attack on the Planned Parenthood offices in Colorado Springs, where, if I remember correctly, the defendant was uh, faced 179 state charges and then 60-odd federal charges. And and yes, with, with James Holmes, he was sentenced to 12 life terms plus I think it was 3,318 years in addition to that. And so the same philosophy seems to be being applied in each of those cases. And we should say that the death penalty isn't an option. It was abolished in Colorado a couple of years ago. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Ian Farrell is associate professor at DU's Sturm College of Law, speaking with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about the charges against the suspect in the Club Q shooting. New details have emerged about the alleged shooter's previous encounter with law enforcement in 2021. Colorado Springs TV station KKTV obtained documents that the AP has verified. They reveal that in June of last year, Anderson Lee Aldrich warned family not to stand in the way of a plan to stockpile guns, ammo, body armor, and a homemade bomb to become, quote, the next mass killer. The incident brought SWAT teams to the family's Colorado Springs neighborhood. Ten nearby homes were evacuated. Aldrich was dressed in tactical gear, threatening officers with explosives before finally surrendering. But the AP says charges were dropped and there was no effort to seize any weapons under Colorado's red flag law. Officials won't say why. As the AP writes, 
All of it now stands as one of the most glaring missed warnings in America's sad litany of mass violence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Immediately following the Club Q attack, police in Colorado Springs said on several occasions versions of this. We know there were more people at the club and we really want to speak to them. They could be victims of a crime. Uh, And so we are looking to talk to them and identify them, if at all possible. These pleas to come forward made us want to explore the relationship between LGBTQ people and law enforcement, reasons there'd be reluctance. So we have reached attorney Heron Greensmith, who monitors anti-LGBTQ movements at Political Research Associates. Greensmith is adjunct faculty as well at Boston University and teaches a course on queerness and the law. Heron, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here. CSPD tells me they had a, quote, good response to requests for people to come forward and that they are still open to speaking with anyone who is in the club and has not been contacted. Um, But does it surprise you that there would be some reluctance? No, it doesn't surprise me that there's some reluctance to come forward. There are lots of different reasons why queer people, LGBTQI people might be reluctant to speak with law enforcement, be that bias or biased treatment in the past or an understanding that law enforcement haven't been particularly successful in preventing or interrupting or solving anti-LGBT crimes in the past. Um, Those are a couple of reasons why folks might be reluctant to come forward. And then finally, some people might be reluctant to share the information that they were at an LGBT club especially in a time of heightened violence against LGBT people and in a time of heightened anecdotal evidence of law enforcement bias against LGBT people as well. Yeah, let's explore that. What does bias in policing look like towards the LGBTQ community? Um, Are there historical (laughs) examples that stand out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are some more recent examples, um, the deaths of Laileen Polanco and the deaths of Tony McDade, um, both uh, in the hands of law enforcement. Laileen Polanco was um, in a place of incarceration at the time of her death, and Tony McDade was shot by police at the time of his death. Both of these stories highlight the... um, reluctance or misunderstanding of law enforcement to understand the structural biases facing trans people, in this case, Black trans people who are facing anti-Blackness, both from society at large and from the law enforcement community, anti-trans bias, misogyny, sexism, classism, the structural biases against 
LGBT people, particularly LGBT people of color, work to also create law enforcement biases against LGBT people, particularly LGBT people of color. Two trans people died in the Club Q attack. And one month before, one month before, almost to the day, you wrote a piece that said, quote, an increase in violent rhetoric has led directly to legitimate security concerns for the LGBT community. I wonder then what your reaction was to the news of the Club Q shooting and how it affected you having been braced for something like this. It affected me as it affected all of my friends and my community and the larger queer community so deeply, just as the Pulse shootings affected us. It is one thing to hear constant anti-LGBT rhetoric coming from the Christian right, coming from right-wing media, coming from um, militias and paramilitaries and neo-Nazis. And then it is quite another thing to see the faces of people who look just like you and know that they won't be waking up tomorrow, that they won't be alive to enjoy another night at Club Q together, just like the many nights that I've spent with my friends at at clubs, just like Club Q. You mentioned Pulse, the club in Orlando uh, that was also a popular destination for the LGBTQ community. Um, We have talked a little bit about recent history when it comes to law enforcement and this community. Uh, And you you reflected then on the current climate as well. Would you just expound a little bit on that? Sure. I want to talk a little bit about about hate crimes laws as well. Um, I want to bring up the Movement Advancement Project, which is a think tank actually based in Denver. Um, I encourage everyone to go check out lgbtmap.org. They released a report last year looking at the uh, efficacy of hate, of hate crimes, investigations, hate crimes laws, and then um, thinking about the, the environment of anti-LGBT rhetoric right now, the incredibly heightened, tense environment, and then thinking about the many charges against Aldrich, and then looking through the lenses of this report from Movement Advancement Project. And honestly, it it kind of makes me it makes me a little bit, it, it increases my anxiety and increases my bad feelings and my bad reactions about, about the shooting at Club Q. So we know that hate crimes laws don't actually make us safer. Harsher sentences don't deter other people from committing hate crimes. They don't address the root causes of hate crimes. As we know, the systemic racism, systemic anti-LGBT Um, belief here in the United States. Um, And in general, they focus too much on individual actions versus, as I said, the systemic actions that are going to continue to incentivize violence against LGBT people right now. Um, That is my feeling about the kind of the larger environment right now around, around hate crimes. And I'll say that the stiffest penalties that the alleged shooter faces uh, are the murder charges. 
Um, And the bias crimes are uh, enhancements in a way in terms of charges. So I want to note uh, with the idea of focusing on the relationship between law enforcement and the LGBTQ community, the the Monday after the attack, Colorado Springs police released the names of those murdered at Club Q. And I'd like to just listen to a snippet of that. We respect all of our community members, including our LGBTQ community. Therefore, we will be identifying the victims by how they identified themselves and how their families have loved and identified them. The first person I'll identify is Kelly Loving. Kelly's pronouns are she, her. Daniel Aston. Daniel's pronouns are he, him. And it went on thusly for all who were killed. Does that language around pronouns tell you that policing is headed in the right direction? Honestly, the language around pronouns tells me that the police are headed in the direction of reaching a barest minimum of dignity for those who lost their lives at Club Q. I would hope that every victim or survivor of a crime is referred to by the names that they used and the pronouns that they used in life. That seems to be a very low threshold to to cross. I am glad that law enforcement in this case did cross that threshold because we know that they haven't in the past. And we know that actually having people misidentified, particularly trans people through a wrong name or through a wrong pronoun, leads to the undercounting of bias crimes against LGBT people. So very glad, excited that we'll have folks counted amongst those impacted by bias crimes. But again, this is an extremely low threshold to cross for dignity of survivors and victims of violent crimes. I want to add that a Club Q co-owner told us the bar has a good relationship with Colorado Springs police. Um, And that after the Pulse shooting in Orlando, CSPD educated themselves on some LGBTQ issues. The department has been of assistance during pride events, proactive when it came to policing the neighborhood. Um, But, you know, in this case, customers thwarted the shooter. They did. You say that underscores the need to make investments in the LGBTQ community. Would you expound on that for us? Yes, and I'm not the only one saying this right now. It is clear through, like exactly as you said, through the community reaction to Aldrich entering the club, it was not law enforcement who were able to prevent Aldrich from from accessing the weapons that he did, that, that Aldrich did, and entering the club. It was not law enforcement that stopped Aldrich in their tracks and took them down. And it will be Aldrich that, it will be law enforcement that prosecutes Aldrich, um, but the people who prevented and who stepped in and who saved dozens of lives there were members of the community, were the father of a young woman who took her boyfriend to see a drag show. What this tells me is that we are there for each other when the bad things happen and when the good things happen. 
there are organizations both in Colorado Springs, across Colorado and across the country that are building community supports for queer people, people who have faced violence and people who likely will face violence in the in this, this environment of heightened um, and increased anti-LGBT rhetoric. And it is clear that those community organizations and those community networks are what is going to be with us for the long term. We are the ones who will save ourselves here. Transgender people face, quote, extraordinary levels of physical and sexual violence, according to the National Center for Transgender Equality. And um, I wonder if you might expound before we go on ways that law enforcement may contribute to that picture. Mm. Yes, thank you. This is such a, a difficult question to grapple with. So law enforcement interactions with transgender people um, can range from obviously innocuous all the way to deadly. Um, looking at uh, um, the Tony McDade's and uh, Lillian Polanco, who I spoke of earlier, who died in law enforcement custody. Um, law enforcement, particularly uh, law enforcement on the streets, have a very strained relationship with trans folks, particularly in urban areas where law enforcement may have taken advantage of non-loitering laws or laws that um, target sex workers specifically in order to arrest, harass, intimidate, um, pat down, search trans people. Um, in New York City, specifically up until last year, there was a law that permitted law enforcement to stop folks um, whom they thought were loitering. Uh, and unfortunately, law enforcement in New York City took this um, interpretation very liberally and uh, attacked and targeted and harassed and stopped and searched and, and uh, patted down trans people until last year. I believe it was in the summer of 2021 that the um, Walking While Trans bill was finally repealed. Um, and law enforcement are no longer um, emboldened to use innocuous, um, uh, you know, instances like like standing on the street to target an LGBT person, particularly an LGBT person of color, since we know that anti-LGBT uh, rhetoric and activity often go hand in hand with anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, anti-Latino uh, rhetoric and um, uh action as well. Thank you for this perspective, Heron. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Heron Greensmith monitors anti-LGBTQ movements at Political Research Associates. Greensmith is adjunct faculty as well at Boston University and teaches a course on queerness and the law. The funeral for Kelly Loving took place Tuesday in Mississippi. She was one of the five people murdered at Club Q in Colorado Springs last month. Loving was 40. Friends and family remembered her generosity and her support for others in the transgender community. Here's her close friend, Janelle Roche-Grays. What I want to say first about Kelly is she's literally the friend that will give you the clothes off her back. She's the friend that's going to be honest with you and would rather tell you the truth <sighs> if she knew it would make you better. Oh, my God. 
she embraced so many people from so many different walks of life and was a true people person. She never liked being alone. So, oh my God. Even in death, Kelly didn't have to die alone. She had four other angels with her. Kelly was very talented. She could do your hair, makeup, style you, and she loved to make people happy and feel good about themselves. Roche Grays spoke to the early days of their friendship. I'm a good Georgia character. I felt comfortable around her. She was always a safe place for me. And it's just sad that she couldn't be in a safe place even for herself. It's sad that there are people that hate others for literally no reason because they live in their truth. And it was just, this is just such a tragedy. Then loving sister Tiffany spoke, addressing Kelly directly. I want to hate the man that did this to you, but my God tells me to pray for him too. Hate is a very powerful word. So I can't hate him. I've got to pray for him and pray for justice for what he's done to y'all and to you. I know you're in a better place now, but I wasn't ready. From Batesville, Mississippi, excerpts of the memorial for Kelly Loving, killed in the Club Q shooting. An update now on the Colorado Healing Fund. The nonprofit has come under criticism for how it handles donations after mass casualty events. That criticism got louder after the Club Q shooting. In response, the fund has made some changes, and we're going to get the latest now from KRCC's Abigail Beckman. Hi, Abigail. Hey, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing all right, all things considered. Tell us what has changed. Well, as we've reported, the fund typically keeps 10% of all donations that it collects. That's to cover its operations. But yesterday, they announced that they'd secured underwriting to cover administrative costs for the Club Q shooting portion of the fund. That means every dollar that's come in since the Club Q attack will go to victim services. You say underwriting. What do you mean there? That's just another word for financial support. But the Healing Fund isn't divulging who it's coming from or how much it is. Now, I did speak with uh, CHF Executive Director Jordan Finnegan, and she said this is something they hope to continue. And so if we have another tragedy that happens in this next three months, six months, we're going to need to find a way in which to support Healing Fund through that, right? Are the advocacy groups uh, critical of the fund satisfied with this change? You know, not really. They're glad the donations won't be used to fund the Colorado Healing Fund's operations, but they're still concerned about how CHF disperses the money it receives. How so? Well, a lot of the language around the Colorado Healing Fund is about money going directly to victims. The key there is the word directly. But in reality, the group gives dollars to another organization called the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance, or COVA. And COVA then distributes the money as authorized by the Colorado Healing Fund Board. The group Victims First has been really vocal about this, and their concern is that COVA can then give money to other nonprofits that might use it for things that don't directly help victims. So keep in mind that most of the families of the people killed at Club Q live out of state. So work done by a local nonprofit may not reach them. 
And Victims First isn't against broader investments in the community or paying for memorial buildings. They just don't want those kinds of things to come from these funds. They organized a press conference with 40 different families affected by 15 mass shootings in the United States. Tom Teeves' son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012. Here's what he had to say. We are the people that these nonprofits are supposedly raising funds for and claim to be helping us. But we're here to tell you this model doesn't work in this situation. The model that needs to work is that the help is 100% of the donations go directly to the victims. During that same press conference, Victims First and the National Compassion Fund announced that they're partnering with an LGBTQ business based in Denver to create what they're calling the Club Q Victims and Survivors Compassion Fund. And all of the money that they collect, they say, will go directly to victims. And that word directly. Again, is the distribution of donations something the Colorado Healing Fund is looking to change? That's a question I asked Executive Director Jordan Finnegan. She said giving to COVA, which then passes the funds to locally based on the ground nonprofits, allows service providers to find exactly what is needed. So think focus, think groups who focus on mental health or medical needs. They can then use CHF as a sort of bank to get the money out as quickly as possible. Finnegan really emphasized how fast the healing fund can get money out. After the Club Q attack, a first round of funds was out in less than a day. That's because they have dollars in the bank. It's seed money from when the fund was put together in 2018, and those funds are readily available. And all the money that we've given out so far has come out of that seed fund because nothing has actually hit our bank account yet because it, it doesn't usually hit for a little while. She says the Colorado Healing Fund is unique in that aspect. Okay, uh, Abigail Beckman from KRCC, one last question. It comes from a listener, Diane Fritz in Boulder. If the Healing Fund passes money on to COVA, as you've said, that vi- victim assistance group, uh, Diane wonders why wouldn't folks just give to COVA? That's a really good question, Ryan. So Finnegan said people can absolutely give straight to COVA. In fact, she encourages people to give wherever they feel comfortable. She emphasized that the Colorado Healing Fund is not in competition with other funds. That's not what this is about. They're not competing against other methods of giving either. I spoke to someone from COVA who said that the organization does not collect any fees off the money they take in. So another thing to consider. Thanks for staying on this story. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Indeed, KRCC's Abigail Beckman, who's been following concerns around the nonprofit Colorado Keeling Fund. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's head in a different direction now. Tis the season for cookies. And so we went to the kitchen shelf to dust off a unique find, the Animus City Cookie Book. You'll find copies at a historic schoolhouse that's now a museum. All of the recipes in it are cookies. Carolyn Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum, which compiled this Animus City Cookbook, and uh, which throwback recipe did you make from it, Carolyn? We made 
and, and I say we because one of my history buddies helped me with the cooking aspects of it. We made the pineapple cookies. The recipe originated on a scrappy little piece of paper that was in the museum archives. Printed across the top of the scrappy paper was from the desk of Warren Buckley. Warren Buckley. And I'll just say the pineapple cookies, I think, are some of the special occasion cookies. Do I have that right? You do indeed. The book is divided into three sections with everyday cookies suitable for feeding to children, putting in their lunchbox, and then special occasion with a little bit of upgrade on ingredients, maybe suitable for a lady's tea. And then, of course, we have the holiday section. The holiday section, which includes, by the way, some date tea cakes that sounded pretty good to me. Uh, The million dollar question is, how are the pineapple cookies? They were really quite good. We made two batches. The first one loosely followed directions. We just wanted to see if this was worth pursuing at all or if the whole thing would just be ridiculously horrible. (laughs) And it was good enough. We did it again and followed the recipe to the letter. And we got a moist kind of a cakey recipe, just a hint of the pineapple flavor and not super sweet. I'm not a fan of the sickly sweet baked goods. And these were just really good. Oh, I feel like it's such a win when you bake and something stays moist, you know? Well, and we're at a high enough altitude. Anytime we bake without modifying a recipe, you do it with a bit of a devil-may-care attitude of, well, this may work or it may it may crash and burn. Durango, at, what's the altitude there? 6,500, yeah. Yeah, 6,512 specifically. What do we know about these pineapple cookies and where they came from? We don't know a lot about the origin of the recipe. Warren Buckley worked for the schools here. He came to La Plata County in 1931. His brother Wendell joined him a few years later. They were teachers. Wendell became principal of the Anima City School at one point. And when he was drafted into the Army for World War II, his brother Warren took his place. They taught math and science. Wendell taught chemistry and history. And they remained as principals until they retired. Hmm. And one of our local parks here that it abuts the old high school building uh, is named now Buckley Park. Buckley Park. So just from a historic standpoint, we thought we need to try this recipe. Although why a recipe would be written on a notepad from the principal's desk uh, remains lost to history. (laughs) Well, I think people feel strongly about oatmeal cookies, love them or hate them. The oatmeal cookie recipe in this book comes from Zippy McDaniel, born in Rico, Colorado, a former silver mining center in Dolores County. And she came up from modest means, but her family became a pillar of the community. You've basically compiled cookie recipes from all over your archives, right? Yes, we have several cookbooks in our collection. You know, those community cookbooks that churches and ladies groups used to do as fundraisers. We have some that go way, way back to the earliest days of Durango. We also have some of those little recipe booklets that are put out by brand names. We have one from, I think it's the late 40s, maybe early 50s, that was put out by the Corn Council. So it has you know, a lot of caro syrup and mazola and corn-based things. Oh, yeah, there's a caro syrup cookie recipe in this book. It is, and yeah. we haven't tried that one yet. <laughs> okay. So perhaps some of your listeners will take that on. And I, I'd love you to describe the, your surroundings right now, because you're in the schoolhouse. Actually, I'm not, because the school 
It's a very old building with very high ceilings and a lot of hard surfaces, and the acoustics in it sometimes get a little echoey. Oh, that was so thoughtful of you. Well, describe it for us. We're not talking a one-room schoolhouse. It's a three-story affair. It's a magnificent stone building. Historically, Animus City was founded in 1876 as a support town when they discovered precious minerals up in the high country. So Animus City had hotels and assay offices and mercantiles, and it it was hopping. It was hopping. And then when the railroad came in, they did what railroads did, and they built their own town two miles south, and they called theirs Durango. (laughs) Uh, But they built this sandstone building from locally quarried stone that was the most imposing building in Animus City. So it was not only the school, it was a community center because it was bigger than the town hall. It was the biggest public building. It hosted PTA events. During World War One. Red Cross operations happened there. It's just a huge anchor in the community. It opened in 1905 with spacious classrooms and steam heat. And I suppose that any number of cookies would have been consumed inside, be it by school children or otherwise. That is our assumption. Between kids' lunches and then PTA things and community events and, you know, receptions, we imagine there must have been millions of gallons of punch and millions of cookies served. Including your own pineapple cookies. Thank you so much for being with us, Carolyn. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun to chat with you. Caroline Baura is a volunteer with the Animus Museum in Durango. She shared recipes from the Animus City Cookie Book last year for our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Find four recipes, pineapple, oatmeal, date, and caro syrup cookies at cpr.org slash kitchen shelf. Holiday markets are a way to celebrate the season and support local artisans. CPR's Eden Lane takes us to one... For the third season, Fillmore Plaza in Cherry Creek North is becoming a bustling holiday market that includes over 80 vendors. We decided to do something new this year in order to just create long-lasting excitement around our market. So we have 32 full event vendors, and then throughout the market, we will have vendors rotating in and out of our market. Kenny Nelson is the production manager for the Cherry Creek Holiday Market. It's kind of fun and exciting, and it kind of gives smaller local makers a chance to join our market and enjoy the holiday sales season. Good Fit Puzzles is a vendor at the market. Casey McDermott and her husband started the small local business during the pandemic. They create puzzles with artists who share in the profits and choose a charity to give back to. We basically are on a mission to make cool puzzles featuring original artwork. We had a lot of trouble finding puzzles that we really liked during the pandemic. We were doing a lot of puzzles just like everybody else was. We both are creatives. We really love art. So we wanted to basically combine art and puzzles. McDermott says like many new small businesses, Good Fit Puzzles relies on the kind of relationships with customers that these markets help build. Connecting with those Colorado customers or people that might be visiting Colorado and just really leaning into being like a local Denver business, having people get to pick up our product and touch it and talk to them about our brand and our mission. Again, Kenny Nelson. We created a layout filled with up to 49 different vendors so that people can wander around and explore all our different vendors. When you come to our market, wander around, be curious, explore, peek around corners. You can also find live entertainment, food, and community nonprofits at the event. 
I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. And this is cool. There's a list of holiday markets across the state compiled at CPR.org. Finally today, more of the musical talent we're learning about in Southern Colorado. Some background. We held a contest exclusive to musicians in the southern part of our state, and the winner will perform at next week's Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Tickets, by the way, are almost gone, so now is the time to pounce. Anyhow, this week we are sharing the runners-up. Here again are judges Dan Boyce of CPR News and Vicki Greger of KRCC in Colorado Springs. Our finalist today, Vicki, is K.J. Braithwaite, an accomplished singer-songwriter. And what we have here is K.J.'s song, I Know My Grandpa Is Santa Claus. And Vicki, I think of all of the entries we got, this one may be the most sincerely traditional. Exactly. Exactly, Dan. In fact, it's the kind that your little kids will grow up listening to, right? Grandkids, your kids, and might possibly pass that on to their own family as they're older as, oh, we've got to play the Grandpa is Santa Claus song. That's how it hit me. You listen to this, and this is an original song recorded for the purposes of this contest, but it's one of those songs that, although it's an original song, it also sounds like one you've heard before Mm -hmm. somehow. Except Grandma didn't get run over by a reindeer or anything in this one. Grandpa fares a little bit better. You know what I really like about this, Dan, is in the spirit of bringing together people, loved ones, whatever, um, K.J. Braithwaite brought together some good musician friends to help fully form this song and and bring such uh, gusto and joy to it. Including a local artist, uh, Susan Rissman. Right, who's locally known and beloved in these here parts. And, you know, some other players that are just known as good, solid session players, studio engineers. It's got a very good sound to it. Yeah, I think this is a a really delightful little song. Uh, Maybe a future Christmas carol that someday every little kid will know. There it is. And the ho-ho-hos. Uh, and that's KJ himself. All right. Here it is. His song, I Know My Grandpa is Santa Claus. I know my grandpa is Santa Claus. I know he is. Why? Because he has a beard that's snowy white. Works in his toy shop every night. He likes to sit me on his knee and ask me what I want to be. He's got a sleigh that's candy red and a picture of Rudolph above his bed. I know my grandpa is old Saint Nick. He does the most amazing tricks. He knows if I've been good or bad, and he never likes to see me sad. He loves candy canes and snow. When he laughs, it's Than a buffalo. Grandpa is Santa. 
my grandpa is that jolly one we always have lots of fun gonna write a note and leave it on his shelf and ask if I can be his elf he likes to sit me on his knee and ask me what I want to be he loves singing Christmas songs we hold hands and dance along yes I know grandpa is Santa Claus from Colorado Springs KJ Braithwaite and his crew with I Know My Grandpa is Santa Claus. It's a runner-up in our Southern Colorado Music Contest. We'll announce the winner at next week's Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. There are still tickets at cpr.org slash holiday. We tape in Denver the evening of December 15th. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these folks who may or may not be Santa Claus. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. I won't let his secrets know, because I got Santa for my own. Yes, Grandpa is safe. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm on Twitter and Mastodon and Post, and you can add pictures to your radio experience at News CPR.